Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Thank you, Daddy. In Jesus' mighty name, we've prayed. Amen. Come on, say loud, amen. amen. Well, how are you all doing? Glory to God. Hallelujah. Are you ready for the word of God? Hallelujah. So let's get into the teaching of the day. Please turn your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 6. And even the best of theologians are scared of Hebrews chapter 6. But we're going to study it. Amen, somebody. And I just want to say this by way of introduction. I want to say this. Set spiritual goals for yourself. Set spiritual goals for yourself. You can't grow accidentally. You cannot grow accidentally. You see, to grow physically, there are things that you must subject yourself to and that consistently. You must eat every day. You can't say you ate yesterday and so that's fine. No, it has to be a daily affair. Come on, are you with me? If you're going to grow, you must sleep. You must have enough rest. And the same thing applies to spiritual things. If you're going to grow, you must be intentional. You cannot master anything that you have not deliberately learned. So you must be deliberate, set spiritual goals. And this is the kind of focus that you must have as we engage in this fast. Be determined. I'm not going to start and end, you see. And that's why the teaching of last week was very important because sometimes you are so fixated on the clock that you don't actually make any spiritual progress in your life. When the goal is the result and not the clock. Sometimes, even when your church is done, you know you're not done. So Hebrews chapter 6 from verse 1, it says, Therefore, leaving the discussions of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on. I like this. Can we say, let us go on? Listen, this is the language of spiritual progress. The language of spiritual sojourn. Let us go on. Don't stay where you've been. Make progress. You see, spiritual education is the only aspect of the lives of many people where they care less if they make progress or not. And you see, you have to understand, all of this means a lot to the Lord. Because when the Lord wants to challenge you about spiritual things, more often than not in the Word of God, He uses natural things, and then He says, how much more? Are you getting what I'm saying? And so, He has seen your demeanor when you fail an exam. You cry. You don't want to go home. You're so embarrassed. Some of those exams, 
If you didn't write it well, you go to the board alone. You don't go with friends. When they announce, ah, the result is out, you say, ah, go, don't worry, I will come later. And with all the sobriety you can summon, you go quietly, you take your L, you cry, you mourn. Have you seen people mourn that they, they failed an exam? Every African child knows what it means not to do well in an African home. Everything will be associated with it. If you do any other thing right, they say, but you, you, I mean, if you'd used this kind of devotion for your studies, you'd have been doing better. Some of you know what I'm saying. Everybody's pretending like they had straight A's. Same way he says, let us go on. You see, it, it's, it's sad that unlike any other training institute in the world, the church has just one class. Isn't that true? I don't know what I think about that. Just one class. And so if you're not careful, there is no progress because everybody keeps taking milk keeps taking milk. Let us go on. He says, go on to perfection. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards Christ and doctrines of baptism and laying on of hands. I'm going to try to touch on that. But still emphasizing like the concept of going on and making spiritual progress. Let's backtrack a little. Go back to chapter 5. Look at verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, these are languages of progress. Can you say, By this time? You are still sleeping. I'm just sleeping. <laughs> so, it says, By this time. This is a language of progress. Just the same way if you've been in a university environment, four years, five years depending on the course, anything more than seven years is no longer a course, it's, it's curse. <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing? Are you an ancestor? It says, by this time, you ought to be. That's a sermon right there. So you, this should challenge you to make a personal assessment by this time. What ought I be? What ought I be? You, you ought to be teachers. Measuring the level of investment and the exposure that you've had, you ought to be a teacher. But then he says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, A.W. Tozer has 
an interpretation of this text. And I want to take him up on it. And like, I, I, I see the sense in it. He says, you have come to be someone who has need of milk. Come to be suggests that that wasn't always the case. You know, and here lies a very profound concept of spiritual maturity. You see, when it comes to biological progress, when you get tall, you can't get short. Spiritual things are not like that. Spiritual maturity is present continuous. Come on, are you listening to me? So he, he describes a mature person as someone who through constant use, come on, are you with me? Who by reason of use, that's what qualifies someone as being spiritually mature. There has to be constant use. Whatever you don't use, you will lose. Such is the kingdom of God. So, a reverse maturity can happen where an adult begins to talk like a baby. Have you seen someone talk and you're like, you ought to know more than this at this level. Have you not been listening? And that's the exact phenomenon he's trying to describe here. I gave this foundation so that as we move on, you're going to understand. Now, one of the most difficult texts, even for the best of scholars, is Hebrews chapter 6 from verse 5 to 6, which says that even though they had tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. So now, a lot of people use this either for or against eternal security. You know, can someone lose his or her salvation? And all of that. Frankly, that's not my real emphasis. I'm trying to use this to teach you something more important. You have to understand the concept of hardness of heart. You have to understand it so that you pre- protect yourself from it. Because even the best of us, maybe not in the aspect of soteriology or salvation. Soteriology is this fancy word for the study of salvation. But I mean, how will you know I read if I don't use that? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, but in some aspects of Christian devotion... If you are not careful, you will develop what is called hard heart. What is hardness of heart? I usually would like a more fancy title, but for now, let's call this teaching hardness of heart. So hardness of heart is a theological expression for unpersuadableness. 
unpersuadableness. When the word of God cannot persuade you, that's hardness of heart. You don't understand. The word of God is God. So when you come to, it's the worst state any human can find his, his or herself in, where the word of God cannot entreat you. You should be at a point where no matter how fixated you are on an opinion, on a position, the moment I can show you beyond reasonable doubt that this is the position of the word of God, without ifs, buts, or maybes. You let go of your position and embrace the word. And if after you know the position of the word of God beyond reasonable doubt, it's different when you still need someone to walk you through the process, you know, and explain it better. Have you ever explained something to someone? You argue for a while. And then the person gets it. You know the person gets it. But just because, I mean, they just want, don't want to lose. You know, they just, just say, even though. <laughs> because that's hardness. And then it can apply to the littlest things. So, now, one day, Jesus is done teaching thousands of people. And on purpose, using that as an opportunity to teach his disciples. He calls one of his disciples, Philip. He says, give these people food to eat. And that one says, even if I use a year's wage, the worth of a year's wage, we can't feed these people. And the Bible says Jesus said that himself knowing what to do. So that was an opportunity to teach. And so he said, make everybody sit. He took five loaves and two fish that a small boy had, blessed it, and then the miracle happened. There were several baskets left. Now, according to biblical accounts, this happened on two occasions. Five loaves and two fish, seven loaves and two fish. Now, what was Jesus trying to teach? He expected them to come to a conclusion about his ability to provide in such a way that in future, without him having to say anything, they just know this is not a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, so if you study very well what happened, for instance, at the Red Sea, Moses is there afraid. He sees Pharaoh and his soldiers coming and he's afraid. And then he cries to God. And God is like, why are you calling me? Stretch your rod. Haven't you learned anything yet? Stretch your rod. It took Moses time, but eventually he got it. And so when he was lifting his hands on the mountain and Joshua was fighting, God didn't tell him to do that. After a while, he had learned to trust his hands. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yes, <laughs> so this is, this is like the positive aspect of this. The opposite for Moses to still keep asking God will be hardness of heart. 
And God says, why are you, why, why are you asking me? Because when you brought up Pharaoh and you asked me, how will Pharaoh listen? I said, what is in your hand? Come on, are you getting this? So we've had that conversation. We rehearsed it in private. Why are you asking me now? And so one other occasion, the disciples still thought that it was going to be an issue that Jesus or they didn't bring any bread. And then Jesus rebuked them. And he literally reminded them and said, well, have you forgotten the five loaves and the two fish and the seven loaves and the two fish? Why is your heart still hardened? Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Mark 8, 17. Why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you yet not perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? And he goes on to recount the other instances where there was no bread and it was no problem. No bread, no problem. No bread. So that's the conclusion. If you cannot arrive at a firm conclusion after several instances where God showed forth himself, you're hard-hearted. Some people find themselves in that cycle unrepentantly. Unrepentantly. When it was time for Junior Wayek, you prayed like you were going to die. You passed. When it came to Wayek, you prayed, you passed. You were worried you won't enter school, you entered. You were worried you won't marry, you married. You were worried you won't have children, you have. You are still worried. So this is the biblical diagnosis. He says, are you still slow to perceive and to understand? At what point will the faithfulness of God in your past become a weapon for the future? God who delivered the lion and the bear to my hand will deliver Goliath. I don't have to pray. I have seen a prophetic pattern in my life. I don't have to worry. I, ha I have something, something that works. God is dependable. It's not even a question. So the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 15, I think verse 3, talks about reading the stories of the faithfulness of God in the lives of others. He says, so that we through the patience and the comfort of scriptures may have hope. So it, it must be to an end all the experiences, all the things that we have learned in God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. When like Paul, you say, I know whom I have believed. And so, if you never come to that point, it's called hardness. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 9, I'm moving very fast because, I mean, 
my material. It's impossible to cover it, but we'll try. Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 17, and it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. So notice the pattern. This is very important. Hardness of heart involves testing and trying and results. Come on, are you with me? So, if I have tested God, tried God, what is my conclusion? If I cannot arrive at a conclusion, my heart is hardened. So now, after all the plagues in Egypt, do you know what it means to free slaves from a country without war just by the supernatural? Do you know what it means? Do you know that Egypt was the world power at the time? Do you know how logically hopeless you have to be to have even the faintest desire to let my people go? From where? Pharaoh was so powerful, he was worshipped as God. When Moses came, he said, who is God that I should listen to him? That's what he said. Who is God? And then all of these things happen. Do you know what it means for a river to turn to blood? A magician can do river to Zobo. <laughs> you, you have to understand, this is creative power. This is the ask of creative power. Blood! Listen, and I'm, I'm not trying to compare because Jesus, of course, is way better. But water to wine is not as impressive as river to blood. In quantity and quality. You see all of that. Then you stand before an ocean, not a swimming pool. Like, like I used to, like I usually say. Now, I am very sure not everybody here can swim. Because even if everybody here can swim, I cannot. So I'm correct. <laughs> so, so <laughs> you know. I can float though, so don't get it wrong. <laughs> you know, and any water that is unnecessarily deep, once the color is changing, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just like, no. <laughs> and I assure you, if you divide the swimming pool, blocks will carry it. It's, it's that impressive to divide the swimming pool. If you divide a cup of water, what are you saying? <laughs> then, just imagine. You have, you have to put yourself in their shoes. In a moment of hopelessness, you see, you hear the sound of chariots. And angry chants of soldiers ready to come and subjugate and defeat and kill people. And in that moment of hopelessness, 
They are complaining, crying. Then Moses stretches his rod. And the waters form a wall. And the Bible says they congealed. Just in case you don't know. Like, that means, that was the first aquarium. It froze to the left and to the right. I mean, picture that. Do you know how high the walls had to be? It's a scary sight. Then they must have walked for days. Picture the mental image. You are walking in the middle of a miracle for days. You, I mean, you, you are saying what was an ocean? And just to be abundantly clear that this is the miraculous power of God and not one strange phenomenon like the eclipse of the sun. This is, this is, this is not tornado or any such thing. The, the Egyptians tried to follow and that same thing that did not close up on you closed up on them and all of them died. You see that? And then you get to the other side. What is food? You still hadn't learned to pray. Come on, are you getting this? So I'm, I'm taking my time to explain this because some of you, that's what you are doing. After that, you, is it food? You couldn't just ask. You had to complain. The annoying thing is how they said it. They said the locusts were eating as slaves in Egypt. Was it not better? Oh, believe me, they are human beings like that. There was a woman, you know, I, I belong to, I was serving in a church. And the church had a welfare package. I'll, I'll say it, you know, Winner's Chapel. So I was serving in the zonal center. I went for visiting, you know, to one of the members' house. And I'm using the word house very loosely. You see, respectfully. It was an uncompleted building that someone graciously let them stay in. It had no roof. They just put some tampoline over it. You could see the laterite. It was red sand. When I say uncompleted, you probably don't get what I'm saying. It was not even plastered. And then the church says, we'll help. So, this is 2010. They give her 80,000 naira. Please find a small house and live in. She takes the money, the cash. She goes to the, the bishop and waves the money at him. That I said I need house, house money. See what your people gave me. Where, where do I want to see house of this? <laughs> oh my God. Believe me when I say I've seen people. <laughs> I've seen people. I've seen entitlement. And I'm not saying this so that you say, tell them, Pastor. I, I might be talking about you in some tiny shape or form. Examine yourself. 
What is it that I still haven't learned? Let me say this. I'm saying it is one of the worst things that can happen to a believer when the almighty God is trying to woo you to prove to you that he can be trusted and you just don't get it. And here's the thing, and this is where you need to be careful. When they complained and murmured, God still provided. This is the scary part. And this is what he kept telling Moses. I am testing to see if these people will follow me or not. They want bread. I'm lavish. It will fall from the sky. Spread to fall from the sky. And then they pick it up. They say, what is this? You get me? <laughs> you know? And then they want water. Same thing. They want meat. Same thing. And then the Bible says they tested, they tried, they saw my works. Made no difference. The cloth they came out with from Egypt did not get old, did not tear. The sandals did not get worn out. Do you know, do you know what that means? It means the children, as they were growing, the sandals was miraculously growing. They saw all of that. There was a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. They carried their own atmosphere. The angel of the Lord followed them. All those things were not enough. I, there are people like that. So that buttresses what it means to be hardened. And God is gracious and kind. There will always be ample time. So for the children of Israel, it was 40 years. It got so bad, the Bible says God swore. <laughs> you know? This guy God swore. Say, you won't enter this promised land. <laughs> so as it pertains to the direction for the year, so now they're just going in circles around the wilderness until they all die and a new generation emerges, their children. So now in Deuteronomy, God is teaching the new generation his law afresh. And this is the guide for the solid year. And I think it's very important. This is a very crucial teaching for the theme of the year. Beware. He uses them as an example. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's more popular than you think. There are a lot of people who know what the word of God says on certain issues. But don't embrace it. That's hardness of heart, sir. It could be small things. It could be big things. And, you know, in all of this, you can be coming to church. You know when there are aspects of your conviction you don't want the word of God to touch? 
So the word of God will pass every room in your heart and skip over something. Every time. You know, some of you know what I'm saying. Every time, it just skip over. I want to define it for you. It's called hardness of heart. And I've tried to tell you, you see, whatever you do when you have a contradiction like that is not worship. It's rebellion. You may sing the nicest songs. It's because you don't know what worship is. The perfect definition of worship is a life with actions, with thoughts aligned to the word of God. That's what worship is. Your tongue, your heart, your actions are aligned to the word of God. That's what worship is. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7 talks about some certain particular women. It says, For this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sin, led away with divers lusts. It says, ever learning. Everybody say, ever learning. And never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what he says. Ever learning. Ever. So don't forget where we started. Let us go on. It is more serious than you think to learn without conclusion. In the realm of the spirit, it's a big deal. You, you must arrive at conviction. So you see, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So let me say this. The scripture is not for good preaching. Ah! <laughs> After you hear it, what do you do? Come on, are you with me? So it is for doctrine, meaning I have an objective mentality and mindset and worldview about key issues as highlighted in the Word of God. Above culture, above popular opinion, the word of God. I don't care what the news has to say. This is this is my worldview. This is my conviction. This is my bedrock. Popular or not, in season and out of season. It says, ever learning. Never able to come to the point of truth. Verse 8. Now as Janice and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. You might have heard reprobate and you, you never understood what it meant. It's hardness of heart. I mean in the context to be reprobate means to be unpersuadable. Ever learning, never able to come to the point of truth. That's what Hebrews is talking about. 
go back to Hebrews. You know, we read Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, for when by this time you ought to be teachers. Look at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5, from verse 11. He says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be ordered, seeing you are dull of hearing. You know they hear word. That's what he's saying. So this is descriptive of hardness of heart. You're dull of hearing. It says, for when you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. So after you have been in church for years, you don't even know the first principles. Dull of hearing. Still learning when you ought to be teachers. Then we come to chapter 6, verse 1. Follow closely now. It says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, one resounding argument has been if he was talking to believers or unbelievers. If that unpacks it, that changes everything. Because when you're talking about verse 5 or 6, first and foremost, when he says, if they fall away, it is impossible to bring them back to repentance. We, we have to conclude what that means and what, doesn't, what it doesn't mean. Because when some people use that to strengthen the argument that salvation can be lost. So, the people who believe salvation can be lost, do they believe it cannot be gained back? Because the specific thing he's talking about here is that it is impossible. So, I mean, that already ends that. Is that clear? Because whatever is being referred to in that text is something impossible. It has to be something that if you miss out on, I mean, based on general opinion of what they think he's saying, you can't get it back. It says, it's like you've subjected Christ to open shame and crucified him afresh. It's, 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 it has to be, this is not, this is deeper than I sinned. Because in the Bible, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Cleanse us of what? All unrighteousness. So, so uh, I mean, except you don't believe that. So let's carefully examine what he's saying again. Verse from verse 1, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. What do you think he means, the doctrine of Christ? What is the doctrine of Christ? Anyway, let's move on. you see what he means. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. What was he referring to as dead works? Any good Bible student knows that he was talking about the futility of the law in providing salvation. The fact that the lambs that they slaughtered in the Old Testament were but a figure of the real lamb of God. And the fact that all the ordinances were but symbols of a deeper spiritual manifestation in Christ. Come on, do you get it? Yes, sir. 
Christ is the lamb and Christ is the first fruit and Christ all those things find their meaning and fulfillment in Christ so now change your mind metanoia from trusting dead works I mean this is the argument throughout the book of Hebrews look at Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 He says, for the law, having a shadow, can you see that? Shadow of good things to come and not the very image can never, with the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So now, repent from dead works. Come on, are you with me? Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. So now, move your attention from the symbols. And place it on the substance. Alright? And then let's move on. What else does he mention? Doctrine of what? Alright, so what does he mean by doctrine of baptism? <laughs> First and foremost, if you look closely at this, a lot of people make the mistake to think that he was talking about levels of spiritual understanding. No. He's saying the same thing in different ways. So, repentance from dead works is faith towards God. (laughs) It is by faith towards God that you repent from dead works. When you discover that, oh, Christ is the lamb. So, I don't need lambs. So, it is faith towards God that makes you repent from dead works. And the doctrine of baptism is the same thing. That this was the epitome or the the demonstration of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. He was not teaching ordinances. He was teaching faith towards God. All right? And then, now, this is where it gets dicey. Laying on of hands. Same thing. In the Old Testament, when they got a lamb, they would lay hands on it. Symbolically transferring the sins of the people on the lamb. That's what laying on of hands is. So it's all talking about faith towards God. Recognizing him as the sacrifice for our sins. Resurrection of the dead so now, you, you, you see the progression, in, in at least in those two. Laying on of hands, so that's condemning the lamb for death, and then resurrection. And eternal judgment. Come on, do you get it? Yes, sir. Look at verse 7 and 8. We'll come back to the rest, but just to build this case well. Oh my God. Why do I feel the anointing so strong when I'm teaching? All right. Pay attention. Look at verse 7 and 8 and see if everybody read verse 7 together. One, two, go. For the earth which drinks in rain that comes off upon it brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed. 
receives blessing from God. Think about it. So I mean, if there is seed in the ground and rain comes upon it, you expect herbs. Look at verse 8. Read together, I want to go. But that which brings thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. What do you think he's explaining? Is that talking about ever learning, never able to come to the point of truth or not? Do you get it? Like, if you have been receiving rain, receiving cultivation, we want results. We want results. So, you see the same concept of hardness of heart here. Like, after a while, you have... So, so, so oh my God. We will come back to, you know, tasted of the good word of God, the heavenly gifts, and all of that. I, I, I think you should already have a clue what he's talking about. Is it possible to taste of the good word of God and not be saved? Yes! Just in case you don't already notice, he's talking about persuading people about salvation in Christ and telling them to move away from the symbols, Judaic symbols. So first and foremost, the context here doesn't even apply to the average Christian today. The name of the book is literally called Hebrews. Figure. Are you getting what I'm saying? And so, someone summarized the book of Hebrews this way. Jesus is better. He's proving a point. So, in chapter 1, he proved that Jesus is better than angels. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand, and I'll make your angel, the enemies your footstool. And then in chapter 2, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than, the, than, you know, so, I mean, he has a better priesthood. He has a better blood. That's what he was proving chapter after chapter. Do you get it? So he's literally writing the entire book to convince people who were trusting in dead works. You get it now? And so now he's saying, if you've been receiving rain, it, so it's not an irrigation problem. It's not a seed problem. It is, it's so, if you are not bringing forth herbs, there's a problem. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, which really explains this. Look at, I'm going to speed read this because of time. Please, are you learning anything? Yes, sir. And not just that. So I'm killing two birds with a stone. I want to unpack the Hebrew 6 conundrum for Bible students, and then I still want to help you in your own little way, apply to your context to make sure that you don't fall for the same error. It says from verse 1, this is the third time, emphasis, so for you to achieve hardness of heart, there must be a process where beyond reasonable doubts, some objective truth has been presented to you. This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every 
word shall be established. I told you before, and I foretell you, as if I were present, this is the second time, and being absent now, I write to them, which therefore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. So that's the concept. So it's just like when you're disciplining a child. Don't do it. The child doesn't hear. Don't do it. And then you say, if I have to tell you again, there's going to be a problem. Now, when, I, when I'm done with this, you will understand immediately what happened to Pharaoh. You will understand so many things we just unpack. Verse 5, examine yourselves. You see, what did I say? I said in hardness of heart, there must be tests, trials, and results. So now he uses something you can relate to, examination. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. How that Christ is in you, except ye be what? Reprobates. What does some other translation says? Disqualified. So now, the same way you write an exam and fail. You get what I'm saying? So, so there was a process of convincing. And if you were not persuaded, you disqualified yourself. Do you get it? Verse 7. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved. So now, that's the same word, all right? Approved. But that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as disqualified. So, so he's using that word in a very interesting way. So because of Paul's stand for the truth, some people co consider him disqualified. <laughs> But he's saying, just take time to reason it out. So I just read that to you so that you would understand the usage of the word. I'm looking at what to jump for time's sake. So now let's look at Pharaoh. Let me show you something. Look at Romans chapter 9. I didn't plan to read this. Okay, look at verse 21. Does not the porter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wants him to show his wrath and make his power known?
God chooses some people before they are born to be objects of mercy and some to be objects of wrath. If you have not heard it before, blessed are you. <laughs> but then I have to, at least, I can't go into the details of that, but I, I want to protect you because there's just some texts that they just quote, um, you know, <laughs> they just quote out of context. Hey, let me see if I can rush through this. Anyway, nah. All right, so pay attention now. What should I skip and what should I teach? Now, look at this. This is dicey. Pay attention. Look at verse 11 of the same Romans 9. Are you learning anything? Yes, sir. Am I boring you? No, sir. Not like if you said yes, I'll stop. But just be nice, I guess. Verse 11. He says, oh my God. Let me look at verse 10. He says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done evil or good, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of he that calls. It is said to her, the older shall serve the younger. <laughs> and some people say, you see? They hadn't even done good or evil. They were still in the mother's womb. First and foremost, mother's womb is different from before the foundation of the world. So that already contradicts their doctrine. Right? But then there's another mistake they make. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. First and foremost, the words, I mean, it's a popular metaphor, you know, in the Bible. When Jesus says, anyone who does not hate his father and mother is not worthy to be my disciple. He's using that metaphorically, like the love you have for the Lord should be so great that in comparison, what you have for everyone else is hatred. Are you getting what I'm saying? Figure of speech. You think God hated Esau, you know, some people who don't even read their Bible well think that, I mean, like, think about this. Now, when I say this, you must be honest and admit. Some people are of the impression that, you know, when, you know, Isaac had mistakenly blessed Jacob and Esau came, he didn't have any blessings, so he cursed. If you thought that, raise your hand, raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. I know there are only few. Left. <laughs> I, I suggest that you go and read it again. So what seemed like a curse was a reiteration of what he already told Jacob. He told Jacob, your, your brothers will save you. So, I mean, interestingly, I think there's a, there's a childhood cartoon that is like that. Remember, is this Snow White? Or sleeping beauty, where fairies were coming to bless the child, and then one witch came. I feel I feel the movie should have ended just in the name of Jesus, but anyway. <laughs> but ignorance. So, <clears throat> so um, the witch 
put a spell. And then they remember there was a last fairy. And the fairy adjusted. You get what I'm saying? Said, okay, this and this, yes, according to what she said will happen. But this is how it will end. That's exactly what Isaac did. That yes, you will save your brothers, your brother, but for a while. Can't read it. That's what happened. And so eventually, when Jacob met him, this was said, I'm blessed. There's nothing I need from you. He was a blessed man. So what God was saying was purpose according to election. Specifically, who will be the lineage through which Christ will come? And it couldn't be by work. And just for God to emphasize that it's not by works, he said, "Mm -mm, it won't be the older. So that you won't think it's birthright. That's simply what he's saying. You know, but, I mean, agenda with agenda, I guess. <laughs> I think we'll talk about that another time. I don't think it's, it's, worth, <laughs> it's worth the problem. So now, let's quickly touch on Pharaoh, and then we'll close this. Look at something in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. This is before the plagues. I mean, you have to understand, Exodus chapter 3 is literally burning bush, all right? That's where it happened. And this is what God says. He says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. I am sure. I am sure. So, listen. Have you ever known someone will not listen, but for courtesy, you still talk to the person? That's what is happening here. That's what is happening here. So, hey, let me now see if you are a smart Bible student. So when, hey, are you ready? So when the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Get a mic. No, I won't. You know all those things you do like this. Mm -mm. You will say it. (laughs) This is a class. Get me a mic. (laughs) All right, who wants to talk? Now, I want someone from the back first. Okay, there's someone up there. Okay, you know, give the guy at the back. He raised his hand first. I'm glad midweek service is back so we can be doing Bible study, right? So what was what, that? Okay, I think when he said um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, so it's more like the heart, heart was proved when Moses, you know, requested exactly. that he let the people... So now, thank you very much. Please put your hands together for him. So, if by Pharaoh's history, I know that he will not let the children of Israel go. You, you have to understand who we're dealing with. This is a psychopath. Who, because of the population of the Jews, killed every child. You have to understand, even some villains don't kill children. 
So this is, this is a psychopath. So God says, I know. If, if God says, I know that he will not let them go. But then he still sends Moses to say, let them. what's he doing? So when, when, when Pharaoh, as he anticipated, says, no, I will not let them go. That's hardness of heart, according to what I explained. Because his unpersuadableness was then proven. Let me show you something else. So, from day one, God knew that the only way Pharaoh would let the children of Israel go was to kill the firstborn. He knew. Let me show it to you. Listen, look at Exodus chapter 4. Okay, before, before we go there, we read Exodus 3.19, right? So he says, I know he will not let you go, except by a mighty hand. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in the midst, and after he will let you go. You think God didn't know, I, I mean, now Pharaoh, you're turning river to blood. He knew he's too stubborn for that. So, just so that in retrospect, his unpersuadableness will be seen, the fairness of God will be seen. And also, it was also an opportunity to do a contest. Maybe you say you are God. You have God of river, I will turn river to blood. You worship frogs, I will use it as a plague. So he judged all the gods of Egypt. So that's, that's it. So he made him an object of wrath to teach everybody. That's how come Rahab, nobody ever preached to her. But from all that happened, he says, ah, these people are serving the true God. Look at chapter 4 from verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, when you go to return to Egypt, see that you do wonders before Pharaoh. And I have put in your hand, uh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go, that they may serve me, if they refuse, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your son, even your firstborn. This is chapter 4. Still early. So, God knew what to do. He knew where he was going. But for courtesy, so that his fairness would be shown in, in, in retrospect, he started from all these small, small things. And then finally, <laughs> he said... The, the night before, he said, get ready. The same Pharaoh that did not let you go, he will let you go with speed. <laughs> he goes, by that last one, even if Pharaoh did not want, there will be riots. Do you know what it means for a country, everybody, their firstborn, they will, they will go, leave these people now. <laughs> <laughs> they will impeach him. <laughs> Look 
do you get it? So now, so that, that really is the concept of hardness of heart. You know, I can explain the same thing with Judas, you know, and, and all of that. And now, when it comes to you, he says, today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Because the way hardness of heart works, after a period of examination, there's a time where your scorecard is out. So that's what he meant when he says, as they did not retain God in their consciousness, he gave them up to a what? That's what reprobacy is. Even if they knew God, they did not worship him as, as God. As they did not. And, and so now, the scary thing is, only God knows when enough is enough. Only God knows. Only God knows. What I'm saying, read through the Bible. It happened. Eli and his children, his children were misbehaving. He didn't talk. A time came, it was enough. And, the, and, and then the prophecy was clear. When God used Samuel to prophesy, he said, when you saw them, you did not correct them. So therefore, this is my judgment. Come on, are, are you listening to me? So this is, this is actually very serious. This is very serious. So when you come back to Hebrews 6, there are only one people group to whom it can be said, you are crucifying again. Is that not what he said? Yes. You are crucifying again. So how did they crucify? Jesus showed himself to be the son of God. With infallible proofs. But the Pharisees, because their ego was bruised. You, you have to understand the implications of Jesus being who he said he was. Their offices expired. They knew it. It was an ego. It became a political thing. Pilate was not a Jew, but he saw it. That this is politics. They don't just like this guy. This guy didn't do anything. They, he saw it. So to an extent, they knew. They knew better. There was an extent to which they didn't know, but they knew enough. They tried everything. They said he was casting out de devils with Beelzebub. It, it, they knew. Hallelujah. So when he says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, I do not believe that the heavenly gift is salvation. And it will be a stretch to say that that's what it is. It will be a stretch. 
But now you can taste of the heavenly gifts. Come on. Now, when he says taste and see that the Lord is good, I believe that in an evangelical way, you only receive salvation when you see that it is true, right? So in a sense, you taste of it. I get what I'm saying. And is it possible to come to full knowledge that, wow, Jesus is Lord and still not trust him? Yes. I've seen people, for instance, Muslims, when it dawns on them that they've, they've, they've believed a lie, it still takes them time. It feels like their whole world is crumbled and they're in a limbo for a while. Until after a while, you know, they then come in. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight. You know, one of the Muslims that God saved the first day of reboot camp came to me after workers meeting on Sunday. She's a worker now. You know. And I held her hand, let's pray. And she said, Matoko Poto. <laughs> I said, Holy Ghost. As it, I had to stop praying. I was like, I was looking around like, just, Jesus is wonderful. So, now, you use verses 7 and 8 to understand 5 and 6. You know, First and foremost, whatever we're talking about has to be something impossible. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't forget, the Holy Spirit is responsible for convincing people that Jesus is Lord. You know that, right? You know what the sin against the Holy Spirit is? I don't want to get into that, but... Um, he is, do you know what it means to, when Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, right? So he would, he would prove to you that you, your unbelief was sin. But Jesus is the Christ. So I believe that it's, it's in that way that you partake of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word of God, the powers to come, just like the Jews. You saw miracles, signs and wonders. It says, and to fall away, if you, if you fall away, I believe that's a position of the mind, to renew them again unto repentance. It says, since they crucify again, he's talking about the Jews. How can you discover that this prince of life that you killed was innocent and still not believe? It's a totally different thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a totally different ball game when you condemned him to die. So, he's not talking to you. It's different from, yeah, you know, I think you have a point, but I'm not just in an emotional position. No, it's, these people committed murder. They killed an innocent person. And when you prove it from the word of God, and they see by the help of the Holy Spirit that this Jesus, this prince of life that they killed was innocent. And for some political or selfish reason, they don't believe. 
and he says it's impossible. That's reprobacy applied in that unique context. Come on, do you get it now? You have subjected him to open shame. Then the text we read, the verse we read, if the earth drinks rain, that often comes upon it and bears herbs that are useful. For those who cultivate it, it receives blessings from God. So that's the real context. And then he goes on in chapter 7 to explain Jesus' superior priesthood chapter 8, chapter 9, to describe, you know, the things of the temple as just a symbol. And this is what he was saying. Paul said it to Galatia as well. This is the last text I'm going to read. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. You're going to read it as loud as you can. Can you read Galatians 5, 2 together? 1, 2, go. Strong statement. So you, you have not repented from dead works. Christ profits you nothing. So if, if even if you have come to full persuasion, that Jesus is the Christ. If you are still trusting in circumcision or all these other things, it, it profits you nothing. You have made it all vain. So I believe that that's the context of Hebrews 6, getting people to live the false principles of the doctrines of Christ, to repent from dead works. Otherwise, it's all a waste. Do you get that? Yes. You know, and again, I just want to reiterate as it pertains to your own context, examine yourself. Examine yourself. I must make sure that I'm not ever learning and unable to come to a point of truth. God should be able to bring me in a journey to conviction where I can say, oh yes, I get it now. And this is my firm belief forever. What has been given to me will never be taken away. Hallelujah. So in every other aspect of your Christian devotion, live. Let us go on. Let us make progress. Progress will take consistency. Progress will take intentionality. You can't be dodging devotion at your, at your level. At this time, you ought to be a teacher. See, God doesn't waste investment. What, I mean, to whom much is given, much is required. I'm saying that again. God doesn't waste investment. To whom much is given, much is required. Let me say this. If you, I remember our celebration church, you are implicated already. Did you hear what I said? Because by privilege, and I say this with all sense of humility, but fact, you are in one of the strongest teaching ministries in the world. That comes with strong sense of responsibility. 
God will ask you. He will ask you. Hallelujah. So set spiritual goals. I cannot keep hearing I should pray more and not at least try. I cannot be among the company of people that are fasting and with my full conscience, you just wake up and tear bread. That's, <laughs> listen, that's hardness of heart. Your heart is hard. When, no conscience, just the, you know, there was a time. <laughs> Your conscience is seared. <laughs> you know, I remember, I mean, the former church I was attending, we were fasting, then we had morning prayer. Morning. Say, excuse the Yoruba, can it pay his afternoon? I can understand, ah, maybe he was walking. Morning. Just like, it's... You can skip breakfast for God's sake. And I see this man. He came to the fellowship. There was a widow's thing <laughs> on his shirt. A widow. If see, if you want to, if you don't want to fast, won't you do it respectfully? Won't you? Won't you? You do bread or something. At least we can make an argument that bread is like, like communion. You are reprobate. <laughs> even, even if you are not fast, why are you eating Amala in the morning? You are, you are reprobate. <laughs> Who's eating like a thief? <laughs> Hallelujah. Try. Make effort. It says, when you hear the voice of God, harden not your heart. Please rise to your feet. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings. Blessings.